Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I'm Lisa and I'm your host this week. And I am joined this week by my co-host, Christina. Hello, Christina. Hi. And we have a special guest for you for spooky season. You know we love spooky season. You know we go all out for this. So we are really, really excited to be welcoming friend of the podcast, Kian from Wide Atlantic Weird. Hello, Kian. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, we, we're thrilled to have you. So friends out there on the interwebs, you need to definitely give Kian's podcast a listen. Wide Atlantic Weird covers all kinds of high strangeness, uh, you know, much of it Irish based. So we love to, you know, get some of those stories out there. He's going to be sharing some fun ones with us today. So we're really looking forward to that. But before we dive in, I'm going to do our usual spiel where I say we are at Beer Ladies Pod on most of the socials. Uh, you know, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're a little bit on TikTok, we're trying to get better about that, we're, we're, we're working on it, maybe we'll get some fun stuff up as, um, you know, as the witching hour approaches, uh, but this is our big Halloween episode, so we're really excited about this, maybe we'll, we'll even throw a couple ghosts on YouTube, we'll, we'll see where we get, but we also have a link tree where you can find links to all of our merch, all of our previous episodes, and you can even support the podcast over there if you want to buy us a pint, we love it when you do, we really appreciate it. But before we dive into this week's spooky season topic, we're going to go around for our usual, what you drinking? So Christina, what have you got? So I have um, a Lakata um, Brewing Company, um, Community Kvike um, Pale Ale. Well, oh, sorry, George is, is blocking me. If you're, <laughs> if you're not... Um, watching on YouTube and you're just listening, I have a green screen picture of my dog. Um, and I will explain why <laughs> in the background, <laughs> but um, he, he's blocking the image. Um, yeah. So this is, this looks really nice. This was given to me actually at the Whiplash commun- uh, Craft Beer Festival. So I've been holding on to this for a while. And so thank you, Simon, for this. I'm really excited to try it and drink it because I've had a couple of their beers and I really enjoy them. So I'm super excited for this one today. Excellent. I believe they're uh, up north of the border, if I'm remembering correctly. So yep, they're in uh, Port Rush. Oh, okay. Wonderful. And it's, uh, I should say it's Lakata Brewery Co-op. So it's a co-op, which I think oh, is really cool in particular. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. Really, really cool. Um, the, I picked this one. 
um, because the colors of the can, if you can see, it's like oranges and greens and it looks very pumpkin-y. So I thought it was kind of perfect for our theme today. Excellent. And Kian, what have you got over there? So I've uh, I've been traveling. I'm actually just barely in the door. So I've been out <laughs> for the weekend and um, I was hoping to pick up something a little bit fancy. I did not. So I, I have something not too odd. This is O'Hara's Irish Pale Ale, a dry hopped IPA. It's not not particularly hard to get anywhere. <laughs> fairly fairly widespread sort of an ale, but I'm fond of it. And, um, you know, I, I just with where I was and the traveling I was doing it, I went for something fairly dependable, but yes. I, I do enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. And I have Trouble Brewing's Dark Arts Porter. So mm. this is one I do look forward to every year. Obviously, it has a little bit of a seasonal element to it in the name, but it's a delicious porter. And it's one that I first had uh, on tap, you know, a number of years ago. Uh, I want to say the maybe the first or second time I came here long before we moved here. So it's one that I have a little bit of a, of a fondness for from, from that perspective as well. So always pleased to see it back. And I really do love a nice porter this time of year. So always happy to have Trouble Brewing's Dark Arts. So with that said, again, this is spooky season. This is the Halloween episode. So again, we're really excited that this is a crossover episode as well. So that said, I'm going to say, Kian, how would you frame up this topic? I know we've been chatting about it back and forth for a while, but uh, it's 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 high strangeness. I'm going to start with that. But what what would you say beyond that? I, I, th I think we're going to we're going to talk about ghost stories. I think it'd be fun to make uh, connections and differences between the sort of culture of ghost stories in in the different countries that we know. Um, I've spoken before with uh, on the show with. And um, my my friend and friend of the show, Victoria Pearson, about the difference between ghost stories in Ireland and England and how they serve different functions, how the the different religions of the countries and um, means that ghost stories perform different different needs and functions, I think, in society. I'm interested in hearing about comparisons to the US and abroad. There are a lot of stories which, you know, transferred across these countries. Um, but I think there are the differences between them are, are interesting as well. So it might be fun to choose a genre of ghost story and then see how they are different or similar across different countries that might that could be one one way of, of coming at this <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think this is going to tie into tangentially but there's still a tie-in here to some of the work christina's doing because she's doing some books on brewing in the uk and then brewing in ireland what's similar what's different so again there's just a, that theme there of some of these things are are very you know very much a shared thing and some are very very different in how they play themselves out Absolutely. And brewing is really tied up in Irish folklore, for example. We're not going to talk about that too much today, but that is just something like I've noticed from my research. There's lots and lots and lots of brewing and beer and ale and, and just very much within the threads, like just the very depth of it in Irish folklore. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so so Ken, take it away. Where do you want to where do you want to begin? I know you've got windows open to, to, start <laughs> to figure out where to dive in. So I, I thought we'd pick a, a fairly common ghost story from these aisles, which is the, the black dog, sometimes called the, the black shuck. <laughs> and this is a story usually associated with England and the UK, I will say. Most books you find will feature stories from from England. Um, and I think the, the sort of folkloric origins of this are well chronicled in that part of the world. And, and obviously a book came out in recent years by Mark Norman about the, the black dog, uh, which is probably the most recent kind of comprehensive take on this. Not so much has been written about it in Ireland, though there is there is a chapter on it um, in that book. Um, but I'm, I'm just interested in seeing how these things show up in different places. So in England, what you normally hear is 
in, in any number of books about folklore, we'll, we'll have a chapter about the black dog. And the black dog is a spiritual being. It's, it's, a, it's not a cryptozoological thing usually, although some people have written interesting stuff about that, that element as well. <laughs> but it, it, is a, it is a ghost or a demon or a, a supernatural entity that appears to you when you are walking on a lonely street or a lonely moor or a lonely laneway. And you're on your own and it's nighttime and it's dark. And there are versions of the story where the dog is demonic. So sometimes it is huge and has one eye or has, you know, flames coming from its mouth or something, you know, overtly frightening. In other cases, the dog is a helpful spirit who appears next to you and walks with you through an area which is dangerous either because of, you know, bandits or <laughs> brigands in the old days or are some sort of, there is some sort of spiritual danger. You're passing by um, a graveyard that has a, a negative spirit and the dog walks with you and appears out of nowhere to walk with you past this dangerous place and then disappears afterwards. Those are some of the variants with which the dog appears in England. There's also variants where the dog is a family curse, you know, which shows mm. up over the generations, which is, uh, most people know, of course, from Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles, which was apparently inspired at least by visits he made to um, to Dartmoor in the southwest. I'm going to go, I, I went searching for Irish takes on this and um, surprisingly enough, they're, they're, they have elements in common and they have elements that are quite different. So on Dukas.ie, which is a wonderful repository yes. of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this one, I'm sure some listeners will too. It's a collection of written documents, often from the earlier mid 20th century, where people were asked, sometimes in schools, um, to record stories that they knew themselves or stories that they had been told by parents or grandparents. And so this was a record of like a, a then living tradition, I suppose. And you, you get very interesting things. So this is a story recorded in 1937, just called uh, The Black Dog from uh, the county of Kilkenny and indeed uh, from Kilkenny town or Kilkenny city. The story goes like this. The story is said to be true, although it is related differently by everyone. However, I will take the one that belongs to our family, or at any rate, the one that my father told me, and set before you the story as simply as possible. And there is a church in the city of Kilkenny which once belonged to the Catholics, but during one of the strifes of which Irish history is made up, the Protestants captured it and have held it ever since. And there is a graveyard attached to it, which is the resting place of ancient Catholics as well as Protestants. It is said that each night at the midnight hour, a black dog as big as a donkey used to gallop through Michael St. Wolfstone Street, the Dublin Road, and down Magdalen Street. Any person who is unlucky enough to meet this monster will never have an easy mind as long mm. as he or she lives. He spits fire in two long flames from his mouth and does the most frightful, and at this point I need to turn the page, yeah. does the most frightful dances, his two large fiery eyes fixed on them, then he will stand on his hind legs and tumble somersaults until they have the courage to pass by him. On one occasion, an old piper named Quirk O'Leary was on his way to play his bagpipes at a dance when he saw this horrible creature. Quirk, who was a man of great courage, had often heard of this ghost. He immediately shouldered his pipes, filled his bag, blew his drones, and blew so loudly as to imitate the cry of a donkey. The ghost's <laughs> eyes grew more fiery and as large as pot lids, but old Quirk was not frightened. Suddenly the ghost made a leap past Quirk and ran for the churchyard faster than the devil, faster than the devil ran through Athlone. Quirk well. continued on his way to the dance playing The Wind That Shakes the Barley, which was Quirk's favourite tune. The ghost was never seen or heard of since the night it encountered old Quirk O'Leary, the pipe player. Wow. And we, we've we've spoken on previous our, our previous spooky <laughs> episodes a little bit about uh, about Kilkenny Town and uh, some of the, the 
because that's the only place we find actual witch burning. Well, actual in air quotes, mm-hmm, witch burning. Mm-hmm. Someone does get burned. They're not a witch, but you know, <laughs> there we are. But oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And for anyone who's not checked out Dukas as as a as a resource, it's phenomenal. They've done such amazing work to preserve and digitize this stuff, and it's just really, really, really just um, a huge resource. So wow. Yeah. So that that's interesting to me. It's more like the um you know, the, the people say this thing happened story rather than, you know, a, a, an actual sighting, which is a division yeah. I, th- I think folklorists and, and people who chronicle ghost stories tend to make. But interesting how, and it, you know, there's this folkloric element where a character, sometimes a fiddle player, you know, yeah. or some sort of or some sort of joke telling person or a storyteller or a bard or, or a fiddle player meets the devil or the puka mm. on a dark night yeah. and gets one over on him. And this story has an element of that for sure. And it's quite different in tone to black dog stories that you get from the UK. Which is yeah. Why I chose it. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting because you get the, the sort of fire and, and, and all, all of those elements that you, you get pieces of, but it's a very different, different, very different outcome, first of all. And uh, it feels like a different, um, I, mean, I hate to say it, but vibe as well. It's just kind of a different tone to it. And I guess, Christina, you probably get this all the time with George spitting fire at you if he's not been fed and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the whole concept of the Black Dog is a family curse. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like, I totally vibe with that. No, I'm just kidding. Like, I love my dog. But, like, look at his face. He's so cute. Um, So if you can't, uh, if you're just listening, um, I have a Black Dog <laughs> called George. Um, who is um, an absolute delight and absolutely, um, I, so for to give you an idea, his nickname is Demon. So I do call him <laughs> Demon and he answers to that. Um, so I do think that this kind of fits into the theme. Um, but, you know, something that I have noticed since having a black dog is that people are nervous about black dogs. Like, hmm. I and black dogs and black cats are less likely to be adopted, I think I read. Um, so it does seem like that um, is not just in like that folklore has informed people's interactions with certain kinds of dogs. Yeah, well, and that's it. That's interesting, too. I feel like especially like where, where you are in East Wall, too, you do have families who have been there for generations and might, you, you know, there might be a little more continuity of some of those traditions than there may be in other parts of Dublin. But I don't know. My neighbors seem to like him. So but that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's 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 not very big. I will say he's definitely not the size of a donkey. He's, uh, he's a little guy. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's a delight. I love him so much, but yeah, he's funny. He's funny. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know hundred percent if the, the black dog, black cat thing is true in terms of adoption, but I have read it some places, but I, I have not seen any like actual statistics on that. Just, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I have definitely heard that people are a little more nervous about that. So I don't know, Kian, if you have anything. I, you know, I've heard that for the that. first time only this week. And I, I was oh, okay. with a friend yeah. who, who has a black cat and, and they said this to me and, Hearing it back now, I it it does have a sort of an urban legend vibe to it. It, it sort of sounds like you know, one of those like you know that when the when the full moon comes out, you know, <laughs> you know, nurses will tell you that you know people are a little right. bit crazier. It just has that vibe, but I I've no idea. I, I wonder what the statistics whether they would hold that out or not. It's certainly a possibility. Yeah. Now I I wonder too, just thinking about some of the things that that sort of. And I'm not sure if it's as much with dogs, but I feel like, you know, we, we no longer have the kind of thing where ghosts that appear on the road, for example, whether they, they show up initially as like a, a donkey or the shagged foal or things like that. 
but then they turn into different things. They turn into a hay bale. They turn into like all sorts of different stuff. I feel like that's a tradition that's not not around anymore. I don't know if that intersects with black dolls as much or if they're still kind of their own thing. I, I get the sense from the ones I've read that they, they're kind of their own thing. They don't go through this kind of metamorphosis that some of these other creatures do. Um, and I, I think, you know, like the, the puka is one of those that can change kind of their appearance and, and that kind of thing. But again, I feel like they're kind of separate beings, if you like. Yeah, and I, I always get the vibe in some stories that the puka is a distinct creature of its own. And then in other stories, it's kind of just a name for like the devil or, you know, mm. a, a gen generic demonic sort of presence. Yeah. And therefore, it's traditionally said the puka usually appears as a horse, but he can appear as a donkey or whatever else he wants to be. And then in Scottish folklore, you've got Kelpies, which are horse-like in some iterations. And, you know, there, there's a lot of crossover there. And um, I, I don't think that some of the ideas we have about what a particular creature is called and what it does is because of these folklorists who would have gone out in Victorian times and and, and laid them down. And, um, and and therefore they said, this is what the Kelpie is. And so, right. you know, that's when it's set. You know, it's, usually I think that a lot of these are set a lot later than we we actually think. And a common one yeah. is the, the, co the, the death coach, which is an Irish tra tradition. Mm -hmm. And I, I have friends who live in North Chipperary and there's a death coach um account yeah. associated with their road in in rural Tipperary, and um, you'll always see it referred to in, in in folkloric books of the early 20th century as the the coach de bower which literally translated means the deaf coach which makes me think that some you know english-speaking folklorist must have gone out into the provinces you know circa 1870 or 1880 and had a translator with him speaking to irish-speaking people and somebody misheard something Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and so you'll always see it in books, and and this was passed on without anybody yeah. noticing, and you'll still see it written in books as the the coach de Bauer, which literally means the deaf coach, right? Where instead of the death coach, which yeah. would be you know, and co coach de Marv or coach de Marva or something like mm. that, which that's my supposition, but I, I can't imagine how else this mistake got perpetuated. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's interesting. And again, I'm I'm going to do a thing. I'm I'm tying it all together. This is like where I know Christina we eventually need to get Marin Dinley on where you get people who don't know what they're looking at but because she knows brewing she can look at things archaeologically and be like oh this is what's happening and people just haven't picked up on this and and again similarly like if you can speak Irish you can be like well wait that doesn't add up and it's something that should be very simple but unless you have someone who knows these things get and, and like you said they get perpetuated and then they kind of morph into other they become things. the accepted. They become the accepted version. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes they're not that old. You know, some of this stuff comes from the 30s and 40s, and we think it, it was this age-old thing when it was, you know, something which might, might have been quite broad and had lots of different forms would, would have been codified by some folklorist. Yeah. You know, I suppose some of these guys. So a lot of the stories um, that I think I think you guys will know, and and Lisa that I know you'll have in your books, um, will, will come from people like. A lot of them were clergymen or, you know, mm. Anglo-Irish um, kind of upper class fellows who just had an interest in folklore and, and mythology. And obviously Elliot O'Donnell was, was a famous one. Um, and there's another fellow called Reverend John Seymour. And these guys mm -hmm. wrote, wrote books about Irish ghost stories, um, you know, in, in, at the turn of the century. And their stories are still being cribbed. Like if you pick <laughs> up a generic book of Irish ghost stories today and you actually deep dive into like where are they getting this stuff from? A lot of it's just it's, it's it's taken from these books from 100 years ago and more. And I found so I have a book called Irish Ghosts 
by J. Anus Corcoran. And this is relatively recent. This is 2002. But like everything he says, it's, 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 it's fun. It's interesting. Yeah. But almost all, all of his good stories are ripped from like Elliot O'Donnell and, um, right. and, and Seymour. You know, it's just it's funny to trace where these things come from because they still show up in books. All oh, the time they now. do. Yeah, yeah these yeah. things get sort of repeated, like like you say again and again. There's you'll see slight variation here and there, or or I think too, like the the number of times. And I know this one's not a black dog, but the number of times that you know the devil's playing cards and they see the cloven hoof, and I mean it's it's at yes. the Hellfire Club, it's at Loftus Hall, it's you know a- anywhere. Yes, it's yes. like greatest hits, <laughs> you know. And it, but and then the, it becomes yeah, a question of like what matters. Like, does what one like if it's been retold and retold and retold, like I mean, now it's part of folklore, like what, like we have so many modern urban legends, like what, what is the importance of provenance? And I'm not, I'm not saying that it isn't important, but I'm just saying, you know, like, it's like, we talk about St. Bridget a lot here. And a lot of that stuff was written 150 years after she, you know, she was dead and none of, you know, none of it comes from any writings of her own lifetime, but it's still really important part of Irish folklore history and Irish history in general. So I just wondered if Lisa and Kian, if you have any thoughts on like why this matters and does it matter? And does it maybe matter a little bit in some circumstances and not so much in other things? Like what's the context here? Just curious what you think. (laughs) It's a really good question because I do think it matters, but you're right. It matters in different ways. It's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I think in all of these, there's almost always this kind of class element of trying to unpack, you know, are we looking at something where they're like, oh, the, you know, the, the, the poor untutored, you know, unwashed, you know, people believe this, or is it like we've gone out because they are the last, you know, sort of preservers of this tradition. And, and there's, you get both extremes, I think, that are, that are both interesting, but probably both wrong. So it's, it's, and then what do you, how do you meet in the middle? I, I don't know, Kian, if you have I, I mean, I have that. a great yeah. love for that sort of M.R. James style. Oh, yeah. Yeah. educated antiquarian you know in the late 19th century early 20th century goes out into the country and uncovers some mystical artifact or finds some ancient tradition or whatever and you know we, that, i think i think that story comes to us through the writing of people like um um well, God, what was his name El- elliot o'donnell like you know mm. and and so we have this trope the stereotype of the educated person who comes from the town goes into the countryside here's what the local people are saying and then interprets it back to them which is what you know largely british folklorists were doing yeah and uh, you know circa in in 1920s 1930s with, with with you know beliefs in like pagan survivals and stuff and they were right. going out to these villages and telling people oh your local little cute tradition is actually this age-old celebration of you know the the goddess of the the harvest or whatever and the local people were like no this is just a thing we do for a bit of a laugh and like right. <laughs> invented by my grandfather two generations ago and these yeah. folklorists like no 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 you don't understand your own tradition I will interpret this for you yes <laughs> and so there is a class element yeah and there's there's always a, there's always a colonial element as well mm-hmm. where you know it, it, it's we can we can say this that it's a bit of fun but then same thing is going on where people from this part of the world go off to other parts of the world and interpret other groups of people. Yeah. Interpret their stuff back to them and say, you know, or oh, let us tell you what this is really about. And then, and it, there are cases where British people are doing this to themselves, <laughs> where you know, the the city people are doing it to the country people or whatever. So, um, it's it's fun. We have created this version of what we think the Irish or the British countryside is like, and what we think these beliefs are. But there's a there's a dark underbelly to it as well, mm-hmm. especially. Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. kind of hard for me to separate it from some of the colonial thinking as well. 
No, and yeah, you're dead right. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I, I think that's a really important point to bring up sort of especially the sort of explaining I guess back to yeah. people and like <laughs> explaining their own traditions to them which is oh my god the condescension there <laughs> unbelievable it's just, it's just funny like um, and Ronald Hutton talks about this a lot in his yeah. books but the the upper class folklorists desperately wanted these things to mean something that was important to them that yeah. they were obsessed with you know Britishness or, or Irishness in the case mm. of nationalists in, in this country at the same time and that everyone wanted it to mean a particular thing that was so deeply tied to identity. And I think archaeology and, and um, anthropology are more, they're, they're more in danger of being sucked into mysticism and woo than almost any other <laughs> academic disciplines because they're so tied to um, identity, aren't they? And, and we think that our relationship to the land, our relationship to folklore, our relationship to, um, you know, these age old traditions that we desperately want to have been the same for thousands of years you know to make because people were trying to find out what did it mean to be English what did it mean to be Irish what did it mean to be German the brothers Grimm were writing at this time you mm. know um as late as I've said this before but as late as the 1940s and 50s Tolkien is is writing because he desperately believes England doesn't have a central myth that other countries do and he, he part, that's part of his motive for writing Lord of the Rings is to is to give England this this myth that he feels is lacking whereas you know the Irish have latched onto the Tawn and, and Kukulin and stuff and, and the Germans have the Brothers Grimm and they all think that like somewhere out there in the provinces in the countryside is the true essence of mm. Germanness or Irishness or and so these folk tales come loaded with meaning you know and yeah. it means something different to the people in the towns than it does to the people in the city which is which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and there's always that, even if you look at someone like, again, I, I think she doesn't get enough credit, but, you know, Oscar Wilde's mother, who, who you know, she's publishing as Speranza, mm, yes. but, you know, she's going out, she's looking for these things. But again, it's 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 in a very specific, you know, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. there's there's an agenda there, which you, she, I think, to be fair to her, I think she does declare more than some people of her era did. But it's it's also... I think, you know, again, possibly because she was a woman, people could be like, oh, that's just a fun thing she does, you know, and and kind of hand wave it away. But, yeah. you, you know, that's that's a big thing I think you see in any kind of folklore collecting is a lot of these things are collected by women, but the the, the important men are doing the the sort of codifying of these things. But but again, like the women are doing very specific sort of, there are choices made there in kind of what they're repeating, what they're not. And, and often you even see cases where they will kind of... Um, you know, they'll collect the story, but because the person sort of told it, you know, too well and in not enough of a kind of yokel way, it'll be related in a dialect that no one actually spoke. And it's like, uh, what's happening? I think, I think the key figure we're dancing around here is Margaret Murray, who, I mean, <laughs> you know, made her way in a man's world in, in more ways than one. And, and, you Absolutely. know, someone, someone to be admired <laughs> for, for many things. Yes. But... In the of archaeology. <laughs> yeah, 100%. In, in interpretation of folklore <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and and i think again and i know christina we've talked about this too at the other times is that you know archaeologists like to go into fields they don't really know anything about and just just jump in and you know that's i think a, a good example too and just be like well it all kind of supports my idea um but but you know it, it doesn't mean they were bad at archaeology but you know when sometimes when you go <laughs> into you something go else, else it's not really your thing you don't know <laughs> the backstory so <laughs> Well, and I think that that's a really interesting thing about like oral histories, like it's oral histories are a really important resource and they're, they're excellent and so important, but lots of problems come in, but Kian and Lisa, like you're saying, when they start being written down, 
because a lot of times the people that are writing them down are not part of the in-group, as you were saying. So they're part of the out-group. So they don't know the tones. They don't understand maybe the sarcasm or the the in-jokes within the community. And so even if they are doing a really faithful writing down of the thing, they don't understand all of these intrinsic, not you know, exclusively not um, this like under language, like they're not understanding all of this context because they just, they simply cannot understand this. Even if they have the best translator, even if they speak the same language, they're just not going to pick up on these cultural traditions because they just simply aren't from that culture. And so that means that no matter what, it's not going to be a faithful retelling necessarily, even if they are trying their best. And that's something like as a historian that we encounter all the time when we're working with folklore or any history, any writing, because when we can't possibly understand what the person who was writing it was was meaning by this or if they were serious or if they simply made things up because it was amusing to them to do so. And their readers might have understood this, but we now, however many years down the road, don't understand that because we're just so far removed. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you're both bringing up, like who is saying this and who is then writing it down and all of these like layers and things get missed perhaps in, in, in these, in this way. I think that's just really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it happens across. Like it happens with folklore. It happens with music. It happens with, mm-hmm. with sport. You know, our, our, our Ireland in the nineteenth late nineteenth century is in reinventing a new image for itself, a new way of thinking about itself, a new identity. And so you get the the GAA, the Gaelic Games, uh, is formed, and you know organizations for codifying the Irish language are, are, are forming. And you know, as soon as you something ceases to be oral. And, and starts to be written down it becomes like a museumified or whatever mm. and Irish music goes from being this um a thing that you do in the pub a thing that you do for dancing a thing that you do to have a laugh and then they say no 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 we have to be this great ancient culture like the you know I mean the, the a lot of it's being done by Anglo-Irish people you know Douglas Hyde and these who were great nationalists but they they came from that background and so they're obsessed with the ancient Greeks ancient Romans the ancient Egyptians and they they're thinking oh, we need to make Irish Ireland like one of these great civilizations. So what do we do? We take we take the pop music and we elevate it and right. we, we turn it into, you know, cultists and, and these, these organizations are formed that, you know, let's let's have a structured system of learning it the way we do with classical music. Let's have concerts the way we do with classical music, you know, which is which is wonderful. And it's amazing, but it's different. You're, you're yeah. change, that which you study, you change. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you, you certainly see that too, too, in England with the, you know, the English folks on folk dance society for years, they wouldn't let, you know, common people into the library, yes, which is yes. fascinating, even though that was who they were meant to be. The folk can collecting. come to the folk dance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, fortunately, that's very different now. And it's great that they have someone amazing like Eliza Carthy, you know, in charge who can, you know, uh, who can be like, no, no, that's, that's, that's not how we roll. But, you know, for, for decades, really up until Shirley Collins, you know, came in and was like, wait, what you know this was very like no no only if you are you know an academic or you know have the right credentials can you look at what the folk did and and that's and and again like like you said that happens everywhere where this starts to become sort of codified where it's become studied and and where people again want these things to have this maybe broader meaning that a lot of times and again I always say this about you know archaeology is that you know I think we really underestimate in the archaeological record like the extent to which people might have just done something because it was fun or cool and you know but that's not 
ritual. That's not contributing to a, you know, greater thing. And I, I know, Christina, you're making the face. You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because like Lisa and I joke about this all the time that like, you know, when we die, we're going to make these ridiculous burials and we're going to try to get like, you know, 150 people. And this is an original. We've seen other people make these yeah. sorts of comments. It's common among archaeologists. Just so that way, you know, 250 years, 500 years were someone's thesis, but like, we can't be, and even though there's a lots of like archaeologists joking about this now, there has to have been people in the past that were like, you know what? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to do this because it's I, funny. Yeah. I'm going to put you know, a noose around my neck and die in a bog. So they'll right. the <laughs> Well, you know, you really don't know, you know, it like sometimes we ascribe to ritual what should simply just be like an isolated case of you know this person was really attached to this particular thing and his family was like or her family or their family was just sure we're gonna put that in there right. now that's not to say that there's definitely clearly like, I wrote my thesis on burial rituals <laughs> and so trust me there's rituals but for for you know for that there are absolutely people who just did things because that's what they wanted to do in the circumstance and like sometimes we don't need to ascribe all of everything to it but yeah that's a whole whole nother you could write a library about oh absolutely arguments. all right all right i'm going to i'm going to get us back to another spooky story so what's <laughs> what's another good story we should we should dive into cuz again it's spooky season we want to we want to stay on target we do Okay, let's move from ghostly, ghostly dogs to ghostly cats, right? So, I will say that's perfect timing because my cat has just appeared behind the screen over here. So, well done. So, outside of Dublin, there is the Hellfire Club, which is a which is a <laughs> a stone building. It was a hunting lodge associated with rich upper class um, sort of Dublin one percenters from the sixteen seventeen hundreds. And um, they would go up on this is on, on the hill, looking down upon the city, and but at the, and has its own collection of ghost stories associated with it. But at the base of the hill is a a, a more modern building called Killikey House. Now, for anyone who's a fan of the 1970s Osborne ghost books, I think which are the know, best, they're yeah, the best. which are amazing, and um, got many a, a young person into. Um, into ghost stories and and they were reprinted again at some point in the 90s which is probably why i know them but they're they're wonderful the illustrations are amazing uh, and they just kind of they didn't go easy on kids in those days did they no <laughs> no they are they are hardcore they are just yeah. straight in there's yeah. really horrific stuff in there and <laughs> i was haunted as a kid by this one illustration uh there was a double page spread in the osborne book of specters and ghosts and haunted houses and there was a page <clears throat> about a poltergeist invasion of a place called Killikey, somewhere in Ireland. There was very little text on this. Was invaded by a poltergeist that took the form of a, like legions of flying hats. And there's this <laughs> one illustration of <laughs> of like all these kind of stereotypical hats, like you know, like central casting, yeah. central <laughs> casting hats. There's like a deer stalker and a and maid's hat and a you know a whatever a top hat and you know, all these stereotypical things and they're like flying in the window and spooking all these people and i thought this was terrifying <laughs> and later in life I, I went looking this up and i couldn't find it anywhere i couldn't find out where this came from i didn't even know was this the killicky house from from outside dublin near the, near the hellfire club i presumed it must be but i, I it wasn't clear now my, my friend victoria pearson has done some reading on this and i think might have found the origin of this story which is great and it's uh, I will do an episode on my show with her about this, I promise. That'd be great. But um, 
and full credit to her, but this I think comes from a book called Psychic Phenomena in Ireland by uh, a rather forgotten writer named Sheila St. Clair, who um, was writing, was collecting stories like this in the early 1970s. I believe this book is from 1972. And so there's there's various ghost stories associated with Kilkey House. It's still there. You can go and see it today. And, and when I was there, I went with her and we, we a couple of years ago, and they have a lovely little fireplace in in this dining room and you can sit in and look at there's a, a painting of a, a black cat on the wall it's quite famous and this is the ghostly cat that appeared to people in the house um which you can read about anywhere that story is quite well known but this this thing with the poltergeist and the hats i did it's not so see. weird and specific i love it it's like... so weird and specific but i couldn't <laughs> find it anywhere and so here's here's the quote that victoria found in the the sheila st Clair book it says and and this is her she went to visit killicky house at some point I think in the early 70s, um, shortly after the happenings. And it says, in the same newspaper account, Mrs. O'Brien. So this is about an artist. An artist moves into the house in the late 60s and is doing it up, is getting some work done. And the builders and the artists are both reporting weird things happening. Uh, Mrs. O'Brien told how she and the gardener had sometime previously disinterred some skeleton remains in the grounds. They were then reburied and the grave blessed. Well, you know, sounds like you're trying to take some measures there to prevent sort of poltergeist type stuff, but it wasn't enough. As you do, you don't call anyone, you're just like, it's it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It says, certainly there is much of interest to be found at Killikey House, and one must always bear in mind the close proximity of the ruins of the Hellfire Club. In fact, one or two people in the district uh, told us they had seen what might appear to be a latter-day coven functioning in the vicinity. (laughs) Of course they did. (laughs) But what excited me the most was the phenomena of the caps. During the manifestation, caps and hats would be found in odd locations all over the house. Sometimes the caps contained old coins, among them a Polish crown and a farthing. Also shown to me was the kind of cap with strings that an old lady might have worn around the turn of the century. Another was a sunbonnet, and there were numerous children's knitted caps and bonnets. It is hard to say why the phenomena at Killikey House were so varied in nature, um, as, as in the case of Gilhall, there may be due in some part to the fact that occult practices are known to have taken place near the house, or the building and decorating work may have activated certain oh, vibrations. There you go. And there a member go. of the O'Brien family may have been an unconscious focal point. Oh. She doesn't say it was a teenage girl, but you can tell she's going there. <laughs> <laughs> where, Those... where, where is the poltergeist getting the hats? Right. <laughs> Like, you know, like, like when they when they throw stones, you know where they're getting the stones. Right, or nails or something or something falls off the wall or whatever. But where are they getting the hats? <laughs> it it does in, in the Borley Rectory case, in Harry Price's books, which was a very famous ghost story and would have been well known, I suspect, to someone like Sheila St. Clair in the 1970s. He writes that a mysterious brown coat appears. I think in the oh, house. Oh yes, and like yes, things like a ring and coins and things that nobody claimed to own seems to have manifested. Now those are quite minor by comparison to like hats oh. everywhere, but I yeah. wonder if something like that is where she's getting it from. I don't know. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's fascinating. And I'll, I'll say a slide aside on on Borley Rectory because again, like back in the day, I assumed I was the only weirdo who knew about these things <laughs> as as a kid and who's into reading like the Osborne books and and all of those things, but. When I was in high school, two girls in my class, their parents got married and it was a big, like angry Brady Bunch kind of situation. And it kicked off all kinds of, again, alleged kind of poltergeist behavior in their now shared house. Um, And one, like the thing that freaked everyone out was that there was writing on the wall. It was like, oh, help me, you know, whomever. And at the time I was like, 
it's just like Borley Rectory. Rectory. It's like Marianne. Oh my God. And it never occurred to me that maybe someone else had also read the same thing. And like literally until like two weeks ago, did it occur to me that maybe they had also read this and that had they had been like, we're going to do this and we are going to like act out all of our weird stuff about this new blended family with, you know, tried and true methods. But again, like one of those things. So, but yeah, where did the hats come from? And I love just, again, like I keep saying the specificity of the hats and the hats like, you know, it's like, you know, here's a pirate hat here, you know, whatever they are. Like, they're so like from central <laughs> casting, like you said. She yeah. seems to be implying that the hats were just found in weird places. But <laughs> yeah. in the Osborne book, like they're flying in the oh, yeah. window animated by themselves, which is way scarier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a month looking at things to try and find out where this has come from. So weird. I think I have this book too. I'm okay. I'm gonna go do some digging because I think I have the Sheila Sinclair, Sinclair book. I have at least one book by her. I'm sure it's. Oh gosh, maybe it, maybe she. I knew she probably had a couple. Like these people often had, you know, a whole here's, series of. Them. Here's the question: Does anyone have a phantom hitchhiker story local to either where you are now or where you've lived in the past? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got weird ones. Like I have like your standard, like your Resurrection Marys, but. Hawaii has its own, like, Pele, like Madame Pele is her own phantom hitchhiker category. She's like her Tell own thing. This. Well, I'll, I'll do it quickly, but then I know Christina's got some some good ones. But so in, in Hawaii, again, you get a very different category of, of ghosts because you get the sort of native Hawaiian ones, you get Japanese ones, they, and they kind of blend together in different ways. But the the interesting thing is people will see either an old woman walking along the side of the road in Hawaii or they'll see a very young woman and she's always described in kind of the same way she'll have like if, if it's the young woman she'll have long you know very dark hair she'll have blazing eyes there's always this kind of element of fire or if she's the old woman she'll have kind of bedraggled hair but you never ever ever pass her by you always pick her up because bad things happen if you don't and even if she just wants to go a couple blocks, you know, and, and she will do some of the semi-standard um, Phantom Hitchhiker stuff of, you know, either disappearing or, or you know, whatever, but she'll almost always give some kind of prophecy beforehand, like, oh, X volcano is going to erupt on whatever day or, you know, that kind of thing. But if you do pick her up, you have good luck. And so people want to, you know, be in, you know, good graces with her. And if you don't, then like... You have, you have messed up. This is very, very bad for you. But there are some really interesting stories and people even have her like, um, they have a whole collection of some of these books from Hawaii and it's just fascinating how it is different from your other Phantom Hitchhiker ones and that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of transactional piece to it where you will be kind of rewarded if you pick her up versus like your kind of standard ones where it's just like, oh, they disappear. So there's a, you know, again, you want to like, be on your guard but you know, Christina you've got you've got a couple oh I mean I don't really have any specific ones except that I went to university in West Virginia and West Virginia being home to lots of folklore um of course famously the Mothman which is a cryptid of course so a little bit kind of off what we're talking about but, but like awesome yeah but yeah very very interesting there was a museum and a couple of my friends are like really interested in the in the lore and everything but like West Virginia has a lot a lot of legends about the mountains and things to do and not do in the forest and and I'm sure a lot of that comes from um 
Native American, various um, Native American tribes um, that are around there and their, and their folklore, it's not necessarily um, from um, people that have colonized there, though I do think that, that there, there, there's sort of an influence from sort of both peoples that sort of has merged, but there are, there are, I am not an expert in this, <laughs> so there are people that know way more about the history than this. I just went to university there and was, was told things, and some of the things just sound similar to, to stories that I've heard from, from my friends who, who, who live in different places, um, but yeah. yeah, there's, there's definitely like lots of folklore about hitchhikers, which I've heard all over. I've lived a bunch of different places and I've heard definitely that kind of folklore, you know, don't pick people up on the side of the road. Obviously if you're a woman, cause they'll, they'll murder you, but like but also just the lore of, yeah, you put them in the car and then they disappear. Um, or there's like the woman in white, which I think is also really a really common one. I've heard a lots of, but like, yeah. Um, and then I lived in a haunted house when I was there for, for a point in time. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> just, and, just throwing that in there. Just, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, yeah, but I, yeah, there was something in that house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and again, like living in, in the UK in the 1990s, I felt like it got into the popular consciousness with like Bluebell Hill was a, a huge thing, but I, and again, this is kind of the worst, but also the best is I, I got so into, um, when, when Richard and Judy on this morning got into the Ruskington horror and you can, it's all on YouTube now. It is phenomenal. And they're still writing about it now, you know, in the 14 times. And it it's just like, it was fascinating. I can remember like having watched when it was like first happening, like in real time, in real time, people calling in and being like, it's the stretch of road in Lincolnshire, this happened. And this is less a hitchhiker and more someone in the road who just like, you know, disappears in front of the car or they think is hit by the car, all of these things. And I'm like, but, but again, I'm curious, I'd be curious how it's different here. I don't know. I mean, I have a very specific one about um, outside Cork City. There is Photo Wildlife Park. And, oh, yes. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a wildlife park, but it's, it's a large um, estate, like from back in the day, and it's surrounded by this old um, you know, stone wall marking the edges of the estate. Now, right. it's the main, a fairly main road goes past it, so it's not by any means an isolated area. But when you leave the, yeah. the main roundabout coming out of Cork City, you are briefly in an area where there's a lot of tree cover, it's a little bit darker and um, the road is fast and you're unlikely, you know, it's not exactly the spookiest place ever, but <laughs> you are briefly in a, in a covered area with a lot of shade and shadow. And if you were late at night and there wasn't anybody driving around, I suppose it could be a little bit spooky, but like it's well known. And many people have told me this over the years that there is a story that at this very specific point and like people can usually point to exactly where this is uh, as you come around the bend. Um, on the outside of this stone wall, there is a ghost girl hitchhiking. Oh. And if you don't stop and pick her up, and this sounds similar to your story, um, she and you drive, you carry, you drive on. The next time you look in your rear mirror, you will see her sitting in the seat behind you. Oh, and she's yeah. she's angry because you didn't pick her up. So she gets into the car anyway. But this time she's <laughs> angry. And the story kind of ends there. There's no retribution. I'm not sure what it's supposed to do for you. So it feels <laughs> kind of like a it feels like a jump scare from the film rather than mm, uh, mm. <laughs> a folklore story but i've i've heard this one many times over the years and it's it's very it's just interesting how specific in in, in place in space it is oh my gosh absolutely yeah I, I do love it if they're they're you know associated with a very specific place like the, a lot of the hawaiian ones are not they'll kind of move around um but something like a resurrection mary in chicago will be you know with the cemetery there and you know very specific and very again formulaic 
in the in the way the story works but uh, I think that's another reason I love the the Ruskington horror one because it's it's such a weird story that it doesn't kind of fit a lot of these things people will try to tie it in with like oh the American airbase was near there and maybe there's this and that and you're like but the the stories don't really match up they're a little more they're just a little more strange so it's uh Again, I love a story that's just got the the high strangeness that you can't really explain, and it's just a it leaves you with that that sort of tingly feeling where you're like, I don't know what's happened here. It's weird. So, yeah, I don't know, Christina, was your haunted house like it. that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And like it's, and I also find it so interesting that like different cultures tell you different things. Well, I guess different stories. How to like deal with these certain things? Like some of them are like absolutely under no circumstances do you even recognize them. Like if you you didn't see it, you didn't hear it, you didn't do anything, just keep walking past it. And then in other circumstances, you must acknowledge, you must you know speak yeah. with or whatever, or then you'll have something bad happen. So then you're kind of like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Which one is this? Yeah. Wait, which one are you? Yeah. Oh, so I can. You were saying, yeah. No, I, I I like that. I'm 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 thinking about high strangeness, and I found a story in the J. Ingus Corcoran book, which to me doesn't fit any category. It doesn't sound mm. like any of these. Yeah. I'm presuming he's getting this from you know one of these older early 20th century writers. He, he's not clear on this occasion. I haven't tracked it down, but yeah. this is so out there, and I, I wonder. I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on this. He he calls it the, the bog of Allen shapes. Okay, which is kind of kind of indistinct already. So he says, and the bog of Allen is 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 a large um, bog in the in the center in the Midlands. And he says, not all apparitions are instantly recognizable in the dreary, featureless flats of the bog of Allen, especially in the days before much of it was drained and reclaimed for cultivation. There were strange manifestations. Vague, indistinct shapes could sometimes be seen by travellers only a little darker than the grey sky itself, lingering among the peaty pools and black sumps of the surface. From a distance they looked like human figures, and so got a bad name for luring unsuspecting wayfarers into the treacherous depths of the bog. Here there were soft areas of mud of unknown depth where they would be swallowed up and die a hideous choking death as the slime engulfed them. But it may be that there was no such intention. Uh, and he, he tells a story about a, a traveler making his way across the bog and um, it starts raining and uh, he pops into like a, a, an empty hut, you know, a, maybe a leftover famine house or something like that. And uh, as he's looking out through the doorway, it says, um, at one point on the stream bank, he saw what appeared to be a dark patch of haze like fog and yet not like fog. Knowing that the bogland had strange atmospherics of his own, he was not unduly puzzled and yet it gave him a somewhat eerie feeling. The feeling was greatly intensified when he saw that the hazy patch was moving over the surface of the bog in his direction. There was a sense of purpose in that steady movement that made him feel something was directing its course straight at him. Uh, and um, yeah, so the, the shapes kind of approach him and kind of move through him and then make their way harmlessly on across the bog. But very interesting stuff. Doesn't doesn't sound like a regular ghost story. Yeah. Um, it sounds like something John Keel would write, isn't it? In, in, right. Talking about high strangeness, something that has no obvious explanation. I found that very interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, where it's like, it could be swamp gas, but you feel like someone who was <laughs> could explain that if it would be a little clearer. And oh, that's a weird one. Yeah. Yeah, again, I love those. There. It's just like, you could kind of explain it this way, but it still doesn't quite fit, you know. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like any regular ghost story. There's no... 
there's something existential it's almost Lovecraftian it's just yeah. like some, something that you couldn't possibly understand because it's not it doesn't behave according to the regular rules that we expect and so you know there's nothing nice and tidy about it all the other ghost stories in that book are like you know it turns out that somebody died at this spot and that's that right. explains the thing that you saw there's none of that here <laughs> yeah it's just it's just here it is and you're experiencing it and yay they're for just, you or maybe just, not yeah they're just shapes they're just it's like a patch of sky that looks slightly different to <laughs> everything else oh gosh you know what it makes me think of there's um again thinking about music there's this uh back in the day folk alley which was well still is a uh you know channel online you can listen to it they had this folk alley halloween scream stream which i don't think is still going anymore but i i have tried to replicate it on spotify with kind of trying to find all the tracks they had on it but there's the song, I want to say it's from the 1970s by Linda Perhawks. And I, I think that's how you say her name, but she has a song called Parallelograms. And it's just sort of psychedelic weirdness where she is just saying the names of shapes to kind of just bizarre music in the background. I highly recommend people go on to you know, Spotify or your, your music catcher of choice and check it out because it's just one of those things that yeah, doesn't kind of you know you can't really put it in a category now but it gets played around sort of this time of year because it it feels spooky and, and it's kind of the same idea where you're, it's just about shapes it doesn't mean anything it doesn't fit anything but I, I love that idea that there's these just shapes out there that could be a spooky thing but we don't really know so just recommend checking it out hmm. yeah very weird stuff though Excellent. Well, we should begin to wrap up in a minute or two, but any, any other good stories you think we should try to get people to dive into on this on this upcoming All Hallows' Eve? Um, I, I, I'm wondering, so here, briefly, um, an acquaintance of mine has owns a, a rectory, talking about Borley Rectory, you know, oh. the most famous haunted house in, in England. Um, in somewhere on the West Cork Kerry border, a friend of mine, their family owns a, a Victorian rectory. It's a gorgeous building, about three stories tall, in this tiny little nothing of the village, which makes you wonder <laughs> what the, how the economics of that worked out. But right. just, such was the case, and it's all restored, gorgeous Victorian furnishings, the whole bit. And the st ghost story associated with it is that the rector murdered his. Oh my God, I'm going to forget this now. I think he murdered his mother. Oh. And um, he was a fairly young fellow, lived with the mother, murdered the mother. And if you stand in a room, which is still to this day known as the ghost room, you can hear the sound of a ghostly horse and cart coming in the front Ooh. the front drive. But you see nothing. And they, it, it, interestingly, it's not the ghost of the person who was murdered. It's not even the ghost of the rector himself. It's the ghost of the cart coming in as the rector ah. was coming back from the pub to to do the dirty deed. Oh, and I just wonder wow. if if you guys have stories of phantom sounds, you know, that that are are the sound of something that you can't see. I wonder if that's a motif that appears in other I, places. I do have one, and it's actually beer related. So I, it's amazing how I can just tie it all together. But um, again, this goes back to to the Lemps, uh, Lemp Brewing, you know, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, long, long, not a going concern. Prohibition killed it as a business, but. In the, the Lemp Mansion, when they were restoring it in the 1970s, one of the contractors um, insisted that he could hear in the, you know, kind of in the courtyard below his room, he could hear horses, you know, kind of walking around, he could hear carts, you know, basically going over cobblestones. And people were laughing at him saying, well, it's it's all grass out there. There's, there's no cobblestones. There's no horses. You're probably hearing the Anheuser-Busch Clydesdales from, 
you know, a, a few blocks away. And he's like, no, no, uh, he insisted there, there are horses there. I'm hearing them every morning, you know, kind of the same time of day. Um, and he, this persisted for weeks or months. And he finally quit, you know, kind of in, in anger that no one believed him that he could hear these horses, you know, on some kind of cobbled pavement. And that summer it was dry and the grass started drying up in little squares and they dug down and the whole cobbled yard was still there. And he apparently felt very vindicated. And then people found some photos of um, Elsa Lemp, who was known as the Lavender Lady, her horses, who she would have harnessed in lavender harness and the whole carriage would be lavender. So just imagine the expense of that would be, you know, harnessed up there every morning before she would go out to spend money in the early 1900s. And uh, so I love that idea that, you know, the, the horses were kind of reappearing as a sound to someone, not to everyone, but to someone who was angry enough that no one was taking him seriously. So that, that that's the one I know kind of where it's mm. almost a phantom coach and uh, where again, and someone got to feel vindicated by it, which I think is a nice, <laughs> a nice outcome. But I don't nice. know, Christina, do you have, do you have one? No, no, I don't, I don't have anything like that. No. Um, I've definitely heard stories about like, you know, a sound here and then nothing is there and something, but nothing like in particular is, is, is jumping out to me at the moment. I did, however, Google the black dog shelter adoption thing. Oh yeah. Um, and it appears that some of the studies say that there is a correlation between black dogs and higher rates of euthanasia or being surrendered, oh. but other studies say the exact opposite, that it was actually more black dogs got adopted than others. So it seems like really context specific and mm. really depends on the study in the years and all different things. So basically I would say based on all this, it's completely kind of inconclusive and <laughs> who knows <laughs> because there's apparently been quite a few studies. No, yeah. absolutely. Well, but, but before we finish up, I do want to say, I know Christina, you've got a list of interesting pubs and beers that tie into this whole, this whole kind of element. And uh, if people are looking for something spooky. You may have some, some ideas for them. Yeah, so um, it's a website, pintsandpubs.wordpress.com, um, and we'll link it. Um, and they have an amazing article called Black Shuck, that beer that didn't give a... Um, <laughs> and it's it's a, a list of um, with some history as well of different breweries and um, beers that are named after various black dogs and black dog um, sort of histories. And I think it's kind of really, really cool. So we'll link that. Um, some great sources as well in there. So you can see if you have any of these black dog beers uh, located near you. That cool. sounds very, very yeah, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I know. Out. And I know we've been trying to like get like Morehouse's Black Cat or Pendle Witches Brew over here in Ireland. And they're, they're over in England, but they're hard to find here, which is kind of weird, but I know you can get them in the U.S. So if people are looking, they're they're out there. They're out there. And I think, Ken, you were saying there's a supermarket beer somewhere that you used to get. Oh, my uh... goodness. Yeah, when I lived in Essex, there was some cheap supermarket beer that had a black dog on the on the front. And it he wasn't drawn with, like, scary glowing eyes or anything. But you could tell that it was trying to tie into that mythology somehow. So um, I'll, yeah. I'll see if I can track that down and you can put it in the notes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we, we sign off and wish everyone a happy Halloween, any other stories you want to share or any other uh, suggestions for people to kind of maybe go have their own, their own vigil for, uh, for this time of year? 
mystery. I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe we do all need to just go to Killikey House and see if any hats get thrown at us. That could That's be a good place to start. <laughs> that could be interesting. I mean, honestly, sounds like a handy ghost, like to have around. Yeah. Maybe they can start throwing shoes. Yeah, clothes. shoes, clothes, coats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never need to go shopping again. Oh, so you know. Yeah, not a bad thing. All right. Well, on that note, then I will say, first of all, thank you, Kian, for joining us. We love to have you. People go and check out Wide Atlantic Weird if you're not subscribed already. There's some amazing, amazing stuff uh, that I highly, uh, highly recommend checking out. Really, really uh, some good things. I think you, you've recently had on Bob Fisher talking about, uh, you know, Haunted Generation and all that, all that cool stuff. And like you said, Jeb Card with his spooky archaeology. And so some really good interviews, but also just deep dives on particular topics and again uh, Irish high strangeness it's out there so come and find out more about it um but again we are at beer ladies pod on all the socials you can go to our link tree we really really appreciate you people who continue to like and share and subscribe so thank you very much and until next time bye bye happy halloween What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.